Hello everyone and welcome back to Latter-day Takes. So good to be with y'all again on this beautiful Wednesday. I hope y'all are doing well. I hope y'all had a great week. I had a very, very, very busy week. In fact, this weekend hit me like a freight freight train because I actually moved into my town home, which is why this episode is fairly brief and it's just me riding solo because I didn't really have a lot of time to set things up. Now granted, next week We'll have a jam-packed episode, but today I think is actually an important one still because I had some thoughts about why people are leaving the church, so that will become the main part of the episode. Of course, I have my news update, then I go into why I believe people are leaving the church, and everybody seems to be leaving the church. It's crazy. There's like very few exceptions. It's growing, it's increasing, it's becoming popular, and it's really sad, and I go through a few reasons. I go, I give five in no particular order of why I believe people are leaving the church. And then, of course, I close it out with a gospel thought that actually kind of coincides very well with why people might be leaving the church that is brought to you by a quote from Elder Maxwell that he gave in 1996 that is unbelievably prescient. Like, the man just knew, obviously, he's a man of God, one of my favorite apostles of all time. Now, maybe I'm biased. I don't know. I don't know what I'd be biased about. I've read a couple of his books. They're fantastic. He's an amazing man. Anyway, that's about all I've got for you. I hope you all are doing well. We'll be back next week. Jam-packed episode. Look forward to that. Hope you enjoy this episode. I'll see y'all on the other side. But, of course, before we toss it to the intro, I want to give a shout-out to Odyssey Snacks. Odyssey Snacks provides one of the best protein bars I've ever had in my life, and I'm not just saying that. I've become an affiliate because I love the protein bars so much. I promise you I would not endorse this just because you can use my name for a promo code, which, by the way, is Harpy10. You can enter that in the promo code box, or you can simply go to odysseysnacks.com slash Harpy10, H-A-R-P-E-Y-1-0, and you can get 10% off of your order, whatever you get. Now, the reason why I love Odyssey Snacks is because it has an amazing, for one, it's an amazing taste, has about 220 calories, and the macro breakdown is amazing. And what I mean by macro breakdown is that it has a great distribution of fats, proteins, and carbs, which is something that I tend to look at. I love the percentages. The flavor, specifically banana chocolate chip peanut butter, is one that I love. I look forward to trying the rest, which are mint chocolate brownie, peanut butter chocolate chip, dark chocolate almond, and mocha chocolate crisp. Check them out. Once again, that's odysseysnacks.com. And for 10% off, you can do slash harpy, H-A-R-P-E-Y, one zero. Or you can type in harpy10, H-A-R-P-E-Y, one zero, in the promo box at checkout. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mormons are really nice people. Totally nice. They are the yes. best cult. Have you ever, under the influence of alcohol, questioned the teachings of the Mormon church? Well, these Mormons are so nice. Everybody's so nice. <laughs> Everybody's so nice in Utah. They're all Mormon, right? Yeah. So they're not most drinking. Of it, and they're like not cussing. They're like, Slovis, you stink. <laughs> I'm afraid it was the Mormons. Yes, yes the, Mormons the Mormons were the correct answer. Because oh. God loves Mormons and he wants some more. Shout out to the Latter day Saints. All right, so we got some news updates for you all here before we go into the main part of the episode. And primarily, I want to reference what I talked about last week at the beginning, which was we had 
the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, right? Trump's estate in Florida. Do you remember what I said? Because it turns out what I said, at least so far, is fairly accurate. And that is polling, now preliminary polling, right? So early polling right now is showing that not only are the majority of independents and Republicans, the big one being independents, are having showing less faith in government institutions. That has increased since the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Not only that, Trump's polling has actually gone up, especially by independents, which that right there is the caveat. Now, obviously, Democrats, they're not, they're not really budging, right? That's the, I think, the, what, 46, 47% that Romney mentioned and for whatever reason was racist or something. I don't know. But anyway, you just, you're not going to help that uh, 45 to 47% on the Democratic side. There's no, nothing you can do. So that doesn't really matter. Independents really are the talking point here. So I thought that was fascinating that independents are actually looking at what they're seeing. Now, granted, it's not like a huge majority, but it is about 54, 55% that look at that and say, not only do we not have faith in our government institutions, or at least is that that is lacking now. It's also saying that, no, no, sorry, a different poll even is saying that independents are now thinking that Trump might be the one they want to see in 2024. So he's actually gaining steam. Eric Trump, his son now, take this uh, with a grain of salt, actually got on Fox News saying the same thing, that his poll numbers are actually increasing. So anyway, that's what some polling is showing. I thought that was interesting. Remember what I said last week, which was it was basically a win-win. If it's a big nothing burger, if the FBI, you know, we already know that there were some classified documents at play. Now, granted, Hillary Hillary deleted emails after the subpoena, and there was no raid on her estate. There was no raid on anything, and she was not indicted. So if we're seeing that Trump has less of uh, an indictment come down on him, which I know that's not really a thing. It's either an indictment or it's not. But if he has even less reason for the FBI to come after him and they find that there's really nothing going on, then he's going to gain major steam. And 2024 is basically going to be his. Remember, I talked about what Andrew Yang had said, which is if this really isn't a smoking gun, then it's Trump's to lose in 2024. Now, granted, let's say it is a smoking gun. Let's say there is something more to it. Let's say the documents he took that he declassified but still held on to even after they had wanted them back are an indictment on him. What if it makes him look bad? What if it ties him to some ugly, nasty things? Not impossible. I don't know. Crazier things have happened probably. If that is the case, then the win-win aspect of this being, all right, Trump's out of the picture, DeSantis 2024, and Democrats are even more scared of DeSantis. So it's a win-win, as I had said, but it's interesting to see that Trump seems to be gaining steam from all this. Anyway, thought I'd share that as a little bit of update from last week. And then the other big update for today is that we're actually seeing uh, Liz Cheney has lost her incumbency in the primary race in Wyoming, which that's Wyoming pretty conservative state. Uh, They don't really tend to elect Democrats in that state. Furthermore, it was a Trump-endorsed candidate in Wyoming. Now, Wyoming, the the majority population in Wyoming, they're big Trump supporters, so this isn't really a surprise, but it does speak to kind of the wave that tends to be coming. The Trump endorsements really are doing very well when all is said and done. So that ideology is not even close to dead. Not sure what exactly it'll entail, moving forward, or what 2024 is going to have in store for us. If you ask me, if it were my preference, I would prefer DeSantis. I think DeSantis has all the right policy with his, with the decorum, and he's politically polished. Plus, 
I saw somewhere that his net worth is only like 200,000. And I loved that for some reason. I was like, I mean, I know he hasn't been in politics for that long. So I give him three years and it's going to be in the millions with the rest of them. But anyway, um, hopefully not. Right. My point being that DeSantis really does seem to be like just wanting to do this for the people. Now, granted, I'm sure he's going to make plenty of money through this, but I don't think becoming an uber millionaire is his goal. I think he just wants to do the right thing. And he wants, I think he wants to do it in the right way for the most part. But it doesn't matter. Come 2024, if it is DeSantis, he's going to be even worse than Trump, according to the Democrats and the media, all that stuff. So whatever. Just gear up for whatever comes our way. With that, I don't really have much of an update. I did go to uh, – sorry, news update, that is. I did go to the BYU Blue and White scrimmage on Saturday, courtesy of a friend of mine, Austin Story. Um, who I will actually have on the podcast with Chase Bartholomew, who you guys remember Chase. He's been on the podcast more than anybody else. They'll be coming on the podcast to talk what we saw in that scrimmage. And then I've got another guest in mind that I'd like to bring on. I know I've heard this. I've gotten crap on Twitter over this, that my podcast, when it talks about BYU sports, is just not the same as when, for example, my mom comes on the podcast. Now, I'm sorry, whatever. And I know i got to give the people what they want, but... BYU is good talk content. I love BYU football, and I gotta give, I gotta give those shout outs to what this premise, the premise of the podcast, even started on. Right, Fifty Shades of Blue for you OG listeners, you know that. Obviously, switch to Latter Day Takes. So we're gonna talk BYU football for the next episode. Um, but then there will also be other things scattered. Right, I'll still give the news update. I'll still give my gospel thoughts. It'll still be worth listening to. But then we'll have some inside track to BYU football, and we'll kind of talk what's going on there and what we expect for the season. Anyway, with that, I'll go ahead and throw it to the main part of the episode, uh, and the content being, why are people leaving the church? I mean, it's just happening in droves. It is not slowing down. In fact, it's gaining steam, and it's increasingly surprising the type of people I see leaving the church, and it's sad. At least I think it's sad. Maybe not for them, but I think it is. Anyway, I go through five reasons why I think they, they, people leave the church. I hope you all enjoy. We'll catch you on the other side. All right, I'm flying solo today. It's just been a busy week for me. Um, I'm in my townhome, living alone, the bachelor lifestyle. Uh, I It's looking like I'll get roommates, but I'm not really chomping at the bit to do that quite yet. Uh, so I'm taking my time. But I wanted to talk about something that came up because I was talking to a friend who actually listens to the podcast. Um, we were talking about some people that we knew, you know, from way back when, you know, last 10, 20 years that are now out of the church. And it it's never, I mean, okay, I shouldn't say it's never not surprising because some, sometimes it's really not surprising, um, unfortunately, right? But... Uh, sometimes it is really surprising, and I would I would actually say most times it is surprising. Now, granted, it's not like I keep in regular tabs on these people, so the slow decline that gets these people out of the church, it it you're just not there to witness it. So you you know you may not be as surprised if you were actually seeing what was happening. Um, you know, I have some thoughts about what could have happened along the way, but I'll keep those to myself for the most part. Now, granted. What I wanted to give today for today's episode, because I it just kind of begs the question, why is everyone leaving the church? It seems like everyone's leaving the church. So I wanted to give my five reasons. Now, they're in really no particular order, but five reasons why I believe people are leaving the church. So we're going to go through those. That's what's going to be today's episode. Okay, so one of the reasons, like I said, no particular order. 
reason number five, reason number one, I don't really care. This could be reason number three, whatever. It's increasingly becoming the path of least resistance. Now, not living the gospel has always been the path of least resistance, right? We've known that. It's always just a little bit harder in some aspects, or sometimes it's a lot harder in others to live the gospel in a world that increasingly seems to be diverting from that lifestyle. It's becoming increasingly stigmatized as well, not just to live your life a certain way with certain values that don't coincide with the rest of the world too well, but also just a belief in God. That's becoming stigmatized, which is surprising. Atheism is on the rise, obviously. Um, both sides, by the way, of the political aisle, not just uh, on the liberal side. You know, that's been they've been keeping God out of their platform for a while now. Um, wouldn't surprise me if conservatives follow suit at some point. And it's actually morphing from just a stigmatization to being accused of our thoughts being violence. That's true. We're being accused of our thoughts being violence. That is happening now. The idea that we have to watch our actions and live an upstanding moral life may not just be threatening to others, but can now be classified as violence. Believing in the family, a proclamation of the world, standing strong as a pro-lifer that doesn't want abortion to be accessible like it has been for the last 50 years, is now considered violence. If it hurts the mental health of others, it is violent to believe a certain way. Where else do we see that in the scriptures? In Third Nephi, and this uh, this is something I want to dive into for a little bit. In Third Nephi, those that believe that Christ was going to come to earth and were waiting for a sign to come to pass in order to show that Christ has indeed come to earth were threatened with their lives by the non-believers. My dad posed an interesting question the other day. He was wondering why were the lives threatened? Why were they, the lives of the believers threatened when they were merely believing that a sign would come to pass demonstrating that Christ had actually or has come to earth or that he will come to earth? And my mom came to the conclusion that it's akin to the, what we're seeing today. This was a conversation we all had I believe it was just last Friday or Saturday night. Um, Friday night. A belief in a certain ideology can be considered violence. That makes sense, right? I can't pretend exactly that I know how the Nephites were viewing the believers as violent offenders, but I think they were viewing them as violent offenders. I don't doubt that they did. The opposition believed in the concept of kill or be killed, right? The non-believers were like, hey, if we don't kill them, they're going to kill us. Perhaps they were anticipating that the extreme believers are going to act out in a violent ways, or simply their belief system harmed the greater good of their society, especially if it proved untrue. And if that's hard to believe, I don't know why, because we're honestly seeing that happen more and more today, that certain rights of ours may need to be taken away just so that it can be kept in check so that they may not become violence, right? And that's something that we're going to see with free speech, I promise you. There's got to be studies going on right now from a psycho psychophysiological perspective where you attach somebody to a machine and it's going to show like their heart rate increasing, their palms becoming sweaty when they hear like violent speeches, right? They could probably just cue up some of Trump's speeches. And if people are responding with a higher heart rate, uh, if they're starting to sweat, if they're starting to show signs that their things are spiking in their system physiologically then I promise you these studies are going to be shown to say that violence actually can cause speech. And then what will that lead to? They're going to try and say, maybe we shouldn't allow all free speech, no holds barred, things like that, which is the First Amendment, free speech, is one of the basic tenets of this free country, this free, amazing, and beautiful country that we live in right now. Okay, another reason. So I guess this is the second reason, not number two necessarily, not in a hierarchical way. Hierarchical, it's kind of a hard word to say. Higher belief in the world than in the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? Two things come to mind immediately, science and social policy. Some of those things are intertwined. Science specifically is kind of like the Julie Hanks approach, when she literally argues that the gospel is not as up-to-date as the research of academia, which, by the way, one of my favorite scriptures that just sums up academia perfectly is 2 Nephi 9, 
And it says in the middle of the verse, when they are learned, they think they are wise. It's amazing. Because there are so many people right now that are like, oh, well, the science says this, when it sounds like it's in contradiction to the gospel, or that the gospel is antiquated, but we have evolved past that. That's literally coming right out of the scriptures. And I'm sorry, I just cannot believe that these jackasses in higher education happen to know more than the Savior and his gospel. But maybe that's just me. Social policy. This one, I don't want to get into too much, right? Because obviously this is very political. Now, granted, I don't tend to shy away too much from politics, but this one I want to be a little bit more sympathetic towards. I, it's pretty tough. It's kind of nuanced, right? Because a lot of people will think like some policy really does lend itself better to more Christ-like behavior on either side of the aisle. And I see that. Like, I, I guess I can, in some ways I can understand why they believe that way. Now, granted, I, I still think it's misguided uh, at large, but that doesn't mean that their intentions are wrong. In fact, I think most times, if not all times, of the people that I interact with, their intentions are pure. I specifically, when it comes to kind of that line between social policy, politics, where you lie, and the gospel and your beliefs and your values, I have to keep myself in check a lot too, because I certainly can't let my politics usurp my values. My values are intrinsically tied to the gospel, and that should dictate my behavior. That should guide my actions, my ideology. It goes back to the idea that when I start to love the fight more than the belief that I'm fighting for, I'm doing something wrong. And I think that happens to some of us. We start to look forward to defending what we believe in as opposed to just loving why we believe in it. And if we start to love the fight more, then we've kind of lost ourselves, right? Okay. Another reason, third reason that I'm given church culture slash leadership slash policy. We see this unfold on multiple levels. The macro level entails prophets of the church hold specific views or are viewed a certain way so that whenever a new prophet is called, some people that don't see eye to eye with those prophets beliefs might leave the church. For example, I've been told by gay friends of mine that President Monson has been unfair and unprecedented levels to the gay community. Thus, you'll see people that are in the church but potentially more sympathetic to the opposing viewpoint leave the church. That's just one example, right? For President Monson specifically, it's very recent, makes sense. But every prophet can be a catalyst for people leaving the church. We see that all the time. People would have left the church when President Nelson became prophet for whatever reason, this, that, or the other. And then it also happens on the micro level, which is a bishop, a stake president, says something over the pulpit, offended somebody, etc. So they don't want to be in the church anymore. We see that all the time, right? Now, I'll get to kind of the nuance behind that. It's not really that nuanced, but I'll address that a little bit later. But you see it a lot in policy as well, in church policy, why people might leave the church. They're not able to recognize or reconcile, I should say, why some rule may exist in the church. We see this in a few different ways. Sometimes it's policy that exists that really never should have and is more based around the culture of its time. So one example of this that comes to my mind right away is that women didn't pray in general conference for the longest time. But it was one of those things where as soon as it started to be a thing, as soon as we had women pray in general conference, we all kind of looked around and thought to ourselves, if I may say so myself, at least certainly I did, how did this go this long until realizing that was really pretty a pretty dumb rule? Another example is women in the priesthood. That drives a lot of women to have issues with the church and or leave the church. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know what that's like. I'm not a woman, so I'm not going to say that that's ridiculous or whatever because I I can't comment on that. I, I think I can understand at least the discrepancy there that they have to ex- just accept something without fully knowing. Now, granted, what we do know is that men holding the priesthood is actually not a doctrinal policy. It's, or sorry, it's not doctrine. It is a policy. It's a church policy. But it is not doctrine. 
So that's interesting. So why does it have to take place on this earth? Well, God may have his reasons, and I'll get to that in a second. Because um, if you're looking for a further explanation of maybe why that is a thing in the church, my own mom actually came on, who's been on the podcast a few times, obviously, in episode 60. So if you want to go back and reference this, she gives her thoughts on this. Brief overview on that. Men holding the priesthood in certain leadership positions keeps them coming to the church. And that's known through a statistic that my mom cites that when women in other churches are able to hold positions on the same level as men, male attendance plummets. It's tied to the idea that men are biologically built a certain way and certain leadership responsibilities require a certain level of action. My mom calls this harness testosterone. It's akin to the studies you see of how women and men perceive scenarios differently. For example, when it comes to feeding your family, generally speaking, according to a couple studies out there at least, and now here I am uh, citing science, right? Well, it's not all bad, right? But whatever, I guess that's kind of a convenient thing to throw out there every now and then. And sometimes it's convenient to say that it is bad, whatever. It is what it is, sorry. Men will not question what they have to do in order to get food for their family. That may entail robbing a store, stealing from others, etc. Whereas women will consider the store they're robbing or the others they're stealing from and prioritize it differently. Not necessarily wrong, just different, right? Women may hesitate to just get food for their family because they may be concerned about how they're going to get that food. If they have to steal it from somebody else, maybe that person needs it too. And men don't really think that way in those respects. They're just thinking, what's my number one priority? Feeding my family? Okay, going to do it however I can. And that's merely to highlight the differences in how they take action. I'm not saying one way is better than the other, but I am saying if they are different, maybe there's a reason why there's more leadership positions for different sides. That's not even making them better. That's another thing, but that's, that's a conversation for another time. That's not even close to making them better. But anyway, another reason why people may leave the church. They don't want to offend others. I find this one fascinating, so we're going to take some time on this one. What can I mean by this? It's not uncommon for us to be driven by hospitality. It makes sense. We're taught to love others, which a lot of times means don't offend. But that's not what the Savior taught. He did not teach us to not offend. And I think that's because taking offense is so arbitrary and not in our control. We cannot control who is offended at what. Being loving, however, is in our control. Controlling how that love is received is not. So I want to share a couple things here. Elder John A. McCune in Come Unto Christ, Living as Latter-day Saints, is quoted as saying, In our love for those who are questioning truth, the enemy of all joy might try to make us feel that we betray those we love if we ourselves continue to live the fullness of the gospel and teach its truths. Kind of highlights exactly what I'm talking about here, right? President Monson also said this, The great and spacious building in Lehi's visions... Vision represents those in the world who mock God's word and who ridicule those who embrace it and who love the Savior and live the commandments. What happens to those who are ashamed when the mocking occurs? Lehi tells us, and after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them and they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. I think that ties in very well with the idea that this can be stigmatized. Living the gospel can be stigmatized. People may make us feel bad. We may, they may put a label on us that we're racist, that we're homophobic, that we're this, that, or the other misogynist, things like that. I think that goes pretty well with what we see in Lehi's vision in the scriptures that, interestingly enough, it's sometimes, you see an example of people who actually partake of the fruit of the tree of life, then they feel ashamed, and then they wander off the path. So what does that mean that fruit is? The fruit is not eternal life. I'm not totally sure what it is. It's probably making higher covenants with God. But from there, 
we they could they're still vulnerable, obviously, right? And maybe it's those that don't want to offend, so they feel ashamed of having participated in making those covenants. They see the people from the building mocking them, and they say, "I guess this just isn't for me." So they end up wandering off, leaving the church, leaving the gospel, things like that. Maybe that's who those people are. So I wrote some things down um, not too long ago about kind of like why people that are strong, active members of the church may do things that kind of wink to clearly movements or whatever that aren't in concert with the church and the gospel. And maybe that's subjective, but that's how I see it at least. But I think it's it's the reason why that it takes place, like on important social issues, issues specifically, is because they don't actually want to challenge themselves. Now, this is not obviously broadly applicable, but it's some people that may be intellectually lazy because, and I'm using one specific person in mind as an example as I write this. I'm not saying this is this is not broadly applicable, but I do think it applies uh, to more than just the person that I'm referring to here. They can be intellectually lazy because they know that digging into why you believe a certain way while also not accepting the bad behavior of others would require a great deal of introspection while also being really challenging to the internal ideology, right? The gospel, the values that you live, that you believe in. It's not easy to confront it. But if you don't, you're extremely vulnerable to the argument of the other side, especially because it's a facade of love covering vicious hate and respite for anyone who doesn't think like them. Something that I wrote along those lines from my blog, actually. This was something that I wrote probably a couple of years ago. It's along those lines of not wanting to offend others. Love has a precarious definition across the board. There doesn't seem to be an objective definition of love anymore. Maybe there never was. But now more than ever, the definition of love seems to be determined by how it was received by someone. So now we're starting to not just live in, but promote a country where intent doesn't matter, only reception. And it seemed to be on full display in the forms of love, but with caveats. Here lies the primary issue I have when people say things like, let love win. This love that they are expressing seems to be very conditional. It's based on the premise of how it was received by them. So, in other words, because love is somewhat of a subjective action and feeling, there will likely not be an agreeable definition between both parties. And since one side seems to be really pushing that keyword over another, it's love my way or the highway, which is unfortunately putting it more nicely than I tend to see than almost anywhere else. My goal isn't to complicate the idea of love nor oversimplify it. It's definitely nuanced. I wish I could even come up with some groundbreaking new approach to how we should profess to be loving and accepting of love. I will say, though, when we shift to define actions by how it was received rather than how it was intended, the balance of power shifts and becomes solely dependent on how the recipient feels about you in the moment, which is ever-evolving, and that is a scary precedent. It goes back to one of my previous points, which is the Savior didn't teach us not to offend. He just taught us to love. Because we can't control how people feel about how we love. So that's also tied to not offending people, right? So anyway, we have one left. Like I said, this is not necessarily reason number one. However, I did leave kind of maybe the most important for the last. I kind of did that on accident, actually. But this is why I believe maybe the single most important variable when it comes to people that either leave the church or stay in the church, whether or not they enact these principles or not. And it's, they haven't been active in their testimony. And this may come across as harsh initially, but I think it's fairly easy to pinpoint exactly what I'm saying. It's that a testimony is like a muscle, and it requires regular maintenance and caretaking in order to grow. And by that, I mean it requires us to be actively challenging ourselves or sometimes just regularly participating. Just going to the gym, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a very hard workout, but you need to show up to the gym and you need to work out. 
It always starts with regular prayer and scripture study. That leads to regular fasting and participation in calling, as well as renewing one's covenants through the sacrament and temple attendance. This may sound like a naive question, but how many people do you think out there have left the church were regularly fine-tuning all the aforementioned tasks? Do you think somebody that was reading their scriptures and praying one day later, or in one morning, say, for example, later that day decided, you know what, this really isn't for me. It's usually what dwindles first, right? And then a testimony soon follows, and it's dwindling as well. And honestly, you can probably reverse engineer this and see a common blueprint for most people that go inactive. Temple attendance goes down, the church attendance, which is directly tied to taking the sacrament regularly, then inevitably the calling falters, and likely you're not going to church on fast Sunday. You're not fasting, you're not participating in callings, and then that follows a fading of daily prayer and scripture study. In sum, the gospel takes work. Staying active takes work. And it ties back to the path of least resistance. I'm not making the argument that the church is perfect, but I promise you the gospel is. And you'll see more and more if you challenge yourself regularly. And furthermore, you'll understand that not only are leaders of the church not infallible, they can be actively misguided at times, and that the agency of others unfortunately can affect the structure surrounding the gospel. The gospel will always be unaffected, but the church unfortunately will not. Maybe that's why everyone seems to be leaving the church these days. It's really sad to me because I love, I, I, I truly believe that the happiness tied to the gospel truly is uniquely eternal. All right, something I wanted to share for the, for the gospel thought segment, I'll, you know, close it out here in the in this episode, is something that's particularly relevant with what I was just talking about. Actually, I came across this quote, Elder Maxwell, who is one of my favorites. Um, if you've been listening before, you, it's no secret. So he's, he's talking here on the last days and church member dynamics. I mean, this is so prescient. It is, it, it is unbelievable. It's like these men are, they are men of God. There's no question in my mind. Anyway, so this is the full quote, and I'll read it. Church members will live in the wheat and tares situation until the millennium. Some real tares even masquerade as wheat, including the few eager individuals who lecture the rest of us about church doctrines in which they no longer believe. And keep in mind, it's a little side note, this is not the quote, obviously. Elder Maxwell died in 2004. So this was back when, I don't know when, uh, actually it looks like he shared this in 1996. And my goodness, are we seeing this even more? Anyway, back to the quote. They criticize the use of church resources to which they no longer contribute. Isn't that so ironic? They condescendingly seek to counsel the brethren whom they no longer sustain. Confrontive, except for themselves, of course, they leave the church, but they cannot leave the church alone. Like the throng on the ramparts of the great and spacious building, they are intensely and busily preoccupied, pointing fingers of scorn at the steadfast iron rotters. Considering their ceaseless preoccupation, one wonders, is there no diversionary activity available to them, especially in such a large building, like a bowling alley? (laughs) Yes, that's hilarious. Perhaps in their mockings and beneath the stir are repressed doubts of their doubts. In any case, given the perils of popularity, Brigham Young advised that this people must be kept where the finger of scorn can be pointed at them. Anyway, that's the end of the quote. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And a few things come to mind, all right? Cognitive dissonance. You see that a lot. Tad Collister wrote an article in the Church News talking about how people, when they leave the church, can never fully be satisfied. And so in order to satisfy that emptiness that they've embraced by leaving the church, they need to find fulfillment in trying to get others to come on their side. That's cognitive dissonance, right? The idea being that 
if they're living in dissonance, if their mind does not, what they, what they believe and how they are does not, is not in line, they need to do whatever they can to get those two anchor points the same. That's cognitive dissonance in a nutshell. Basically, I have to just go one way or the other. Uh, embrace the church, right? That will, re- that will help them achieve consonance, as they say, which is the anti-cognitive dissonance. Or they have to try and convince everybody else that they're right. And that's why they're basically always out trying to do that because they can never achieve a consonance actually doing that because it is not true consonance. Anyway, thought that was fascinating. And then what I loved here is kind of like the slow diminishing narrative that he gives of the members of the church that live among us and they will be with us until the millennium. It's fascinating, but it's also unfortunate because I kind of wonder what the genesis of this notion is that they that they possess. The idea behind it being that the church is imperfect and ergo must not be true, when in reality the church is a human construct and if it's created by humans it's obviously going to be imperfect. It's the gospel that's perfect. I've mentioned that plenty of times, literally in this podcast, in this episode already. What are they seeking out and what? how will they be satisfied? Do they really think satisfaction will come from one, either changing the church to their liking, which, by the way, I'm sure they'll never be fully confident in whatever their own choices are there to change this construct to fit whatever they feel is best because they know they're imperfect. So that's never actually going to be satisfying either. Or B, they could find something within the world that is supposed to be better than what the church has going on. Now, I'm, like I said, the church isn't perfect. The church has like major issues. We Literally, I talked about this last week, like the whole sex abuse hotline thing. There were so many points that went wrong in that system, and it clearly needs to be changed. The church made a huge mistake, a, a, a few huge mistakes. But do they really think the government's run better than the church? Do they really think that any other church is run better than our current church, than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I mean, if they really think that, why don't they just join that church? I'm sorry, I'm kind of going on a rant here, I'm kind of getting amped up thinking about this, but I do not understand why people want to change the church. I I understand that we all want to improve things, but that's why it's so personal, right? We have to do that on a personal level. Zion is achieved by being of one heart and one mind, but how does that start? That starts with your own heart and your own mind. You can't change others, you got to change yourself. You got to try and first be Christ-like, and then you know what? Others will follow suit after that. So I find that fascinating now, because... We're seeing this more and more, and Elder Maxwell back in 1996 pointed this out, and here we are, almost 30 years later, seeing this come to come to pass, in but in full force, and it is growing. It's kind of terrifying, it's kind of exciting, but ultimately, it is very motivating to think, hey, maybe we just need to get ourselves right, and then everything else will work out. There's an hourglass sitting on my table I'm watching As everything's changing my mind goes to a different time Old love, I remember falling so madly There must have been magic in the valley And a rhythm in the night Cause I could almost see it Did you fade right? Takes time, I, I, if it takes time.